Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Dr. Marion Wilson-Kimber, author of The Elocutionists, Women, Music, and the Spoken Word, which was published last year by the University of Illinois Press. Dr. Wilson-Kimber is a full professor in the School of Music at the University of Iowa. Prior to this book, most of her work has been centered on Felix Mendelssohn and his sister, Fanny Hensel. She has published articles and essays in 19th Century Music, The Journal of Musicological Research and in several collected editions. The Elocutionists is an authoritative study of the practice of elocution or the performance often by women of poetry and spoken word monologues set to music, which was popular from the late 19th century into the first half of the 20th century. Dr. Wilson Kimber examines this practice through multiple lenses, including gender, race, and class, as she untangles not only how elocution was performed, but also what it meant to its practitioners and its audience. Audiences. Welcome, Marion. Thanks for having me. Normally, my first question is, what drew you to this topic? But I think I'm going to save that for the second question and instead ask you to define elocution for us, because I have a feeling a lot of our listeners may have not even heard of this performance practice before. Elocutionists were spoken word performers. They most often recited poetry, but they could also give monologues or prose selections or sometimes solo versions of plays. If you've ever read Anne of Green Gables, the classic children's novel by L.M. Montgomery, you might remember that the children in Miss Stacy's classroom put on a concert, and that concert had in it spoken word performance. So Anne had to go and practice her groaning um, because she was very dramatically inclined. And elocutionists performed in a lot of places. They performed in schools and colleges and churches and women's clubs and at civic events and um, on the Chautauqua circuit. And, and spoken word performance was a really expected part of concert life in the 19th century. Uh, I think one thing that we should distinguish is that most elocutionists didn't actually perform with music. So I'm concentrating on the few that did. Um, some of these performers might appear in groups called concert companies, which would be a small chamber ensemble with maybe a pianist, a violinist, a singer, and someone who performed spoken word. So um, it, it was a sort of subspecialty to perform with music if you were were an elocutionist. And, the, and elocutionists were most often women. There were male elocutionists, but it was a field that women flocked to. And when the National Association of Elocutionists had their first meeting in 1892, three quarters of the attendees were women. So, so it was a, a really a woman-dominated profession. Now, what drew you to this topic? I know that prior to this, and I know you wrote your dissertation as well on Mendelssohn, who's, of course, an early 19th century German composer. So how did you get from there to American elocution? Well, I was researching the performance history of Mendelssohn's A Midsummer Night's Dream Music, and I was reading 19th century music criticism of concerts, and often there would be a performer, an actress, or an elocutionist who would appear in a concert and give a solo version of the entire play, A Midsummer Night's Dream, that usually cut down with Mendelssohn's music that was written for the theater. And it was a way of getting this incidental music into the concert hall in a way that audience, where audiences could understand the plot. And lots of the reviews described women's voices as musical. So I went into the library looking for information about the kind of vocal training 19th century actresses and elocutionists would have had and found myself in the stacks of old elocution books and 
pulled them off the shelf and thought, gee, what, what is this? And who are these women in these photos posing rather stiffly? And, um, and what kind of poetry is this also that, that clearly was very popular at the time, but I had, had never encountered. Um, and, and for a long time, I was interested in just pieces that were spoken word pieces with accompaniment, like they're, they're usually known as melodramas. And I kept ignoring all the other practices, the people who would recite a poem and just add some music. And I, and I kept ignoring all the other poems that didn't have music. And I finally decided that I really had to look at the whole picture and really to help me understand what was going on and how the music and the text intersected. And the rest is history. I take it. Yes. <laughs> eventually, eventually I had to write the book. Uh, the, the other thing that happened, it occurs to me, is that there was a professor emeritus um, at the University of Iowa, Fred Crane, who had also done research in this field. And he, he used to, when he discovered I was interested, he would leave me research materials in my mailbox. I'd come in and it was like Christmas and there'd be Xeroxes and historic recordings. Um so he also piqued my interest in the role of women in this practice. He supplied me with some scores I had never seen before. So that, that got me going in that direction. Uh, when you first were explaining what elocution was, you um, said that uh, you mentioned concert companies and other uh, venues for performance. Can you go into that a little bit more? Where did they, where was elocution performed? How, you know, were these professionals, amateurs, you know, just sort of give us a sense of if I was someone who was interested in elocution, where would I go to hear it? Um, you might go to your local women's club. You might go to a 4th of July civic event. Um, you might go to the Chautauqua tent if you were from a rural town under 10,000 people in the summer, uh, you know, often in the Midwest. Um, these concert companies would tour the, the tent circuit. Uh, but it, it really was ubiquitous. It might be you go to see your high school son or daughter's gymnasium event, and not only would there be Indian club tossing and marching about to show physical strength, but there would be poetry recitation and musical events too. So, you know, our, our divisions of, of, you know, music is one place and speech is another place were not really 19th century divisions. It, we, you could you could hear it you could hear it anywhere um and and it was a very common common kind of practice well what you're describing sounds to me like there's quite a bit of amateur performance or is, does that mean there was actually a small number of professional performers but then but but it was really more of a practice done by amateurs for uh kind of a small town kind of audience there were professionals, and um, there were women who made livings touring the Lyceum circuit and teaching in elocution schools and producing textbooks. Um, but there certainly were amateur or semi-professional performers as well. So, you know, just like now you might study piano with a woman from her home in your town, you could also go study elocution with a woman teaching out of her home. Um, there were many schools, elocution schools in various towns, often founded and run by women. So um, most women who were in elocution did teach. That was partly how they made a living. Um, but but there's certainly a, a network of amateur performers as well. And, um, you know, I, I've joked that I'm convinced in 1895, everybody got a poetry anthology for Christmas because you, these books are still out there on eBay and they have uh, big elaborate plates in the front where you can say who the book is to and who it's from. So, so it was also a popular fad for amateurs for a while. One of the things that I really love about your book is how you talk about women in this practice. And I thought we could maybe, un and you've started talking about that already, so maybe we can unpack that a little bit. Let's start first with, um, you know, if this is slightly smaller professional class, um, of course, you can't talk about women in the 19th and early 20th centuries without talking about respectability. So maybe you can talk about, you know, that aspect of it. You know, why were women so drawn to this? 
and how did it reinforce or maybe break uh, traditional gender roles at the time? Well, one way women got into elocution was that it was seen as more respectable than giving speeches or God forbid, becoming an actress, in that it replicated the sorts of activities women might do in the home. They might recite poetry to their families for entertainment or to teach their children. They might read to them. So it has a kind of domestic root, and that made it more respectable. Um, Actresses, of course, have this long association with selling themselves for money and an association with prostitution. So elocutionists worked very, very hard to separate themselves from from actresses, even though sometimes the practices were overlapping. So the examples I like to give are uh, Jesse Alexander was a Canadian elocutionist, and she gave dramatic and humorous recitals. But when she performed at a church, the church knocked dramatic off her flyer because they thought that that was not respectable for a church. And another uh, elocutionist, Isabel Garhill Beecher, told an agent who was trying to get her to become an actress that she didn't want her young son to be burdened with an actress mother. So uh, there are various names for elocutionists, not just elocutionists, but reader and reciter and dramatic reader and interpreter and monologist. Um, And all of these words are ways of saying, this is not theater, this is not acting. This is something much more respectable for women to do on the platform. Uh, so uh, it's a it's a very careful negotiation that women women are making. They they have to p- perform texts that are socially acceptable, um, and they have to always remind people that they are in fact not acting. Though sometimes, of course, what women did we would consider acting. And does this then make it acceptable, the fact that the, let's see if I can say this correctly, the fact that the art form itself was considered acceptable for women, does that mean that it was acceptable then for for them to run these schools? Or did you find pushback in the press for women, um, you know, becoming small business owners, essentially? Um, What's going on there? Well, it doesn't seem to be... um much push pushback against the schools and some of the schools did very well. Um, some of them still exist. In fact, um, uh, Anna Barrett Curry founded a school and then she married Samuel Curry and that school is still in existence as Curry college. Columbia college in Chicago was actually an elocution school founded by two women. So, some of the schools did fine. I, I think there's more pushback against the notion of individual women as performers. And there are certainly lots of stereotypes of women as being untalented, as being um, able to mouth words but, words, but not really intellectually engaged with them in the way that men are, as misogynist stereotypes. Um And um, after a while, as elocution as being a stilted and an artificial style that the little old lady in your town who's teaching this um, embodies. So there's definitely a pushback against women in the field. And um, the field is presented as something that is shallow and sentimental. And the performance style is antiquated. And, uh, and you see this happening in the field of speech that that the word elocution becomes a bad word and they rename elocution as expression. And then after that, they rename expression as oral or interpretation. And in, in some sense, this is a, an attempt to get away from stereotypes that are associated with the women that dominated the field in the 1890s and before World War One. Well, that brings up... Is- do you think there, I mean, is anyone doing this anymore? Except now I've heard you do this. We can talk about that in a minute. But, or is there some kind of um, descendant from elocution that you still see as part of the culture? Or has this practice just completely died away? You know, 
I every time I say it's died away, I find examples. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I think I think high school students who engage in forensics contests where they recite poetry are a descendant of this. Um, if you if you engage in poetry competitions as a high school student, you are not um, supposed to act as if you memorized your text. You're supposed to hold the book. And of course, I imagine the high school students, if they practice very much, really do memorize their text. But I, I see this as a holdover of this notion that that elocution has its basis in literature, and that's part of its its worth and artistic good, that it's the transmission of great literature. So I, I do see this. And, you know, I, I've said in the book that choral speaking dies out, that these were choirs of people who spoke together in the 30s and the 40s. But I found YouTube videos of a choral speaking group at a Presbyterian church. And when my son went off to college, his roommate from Sumner, Iowa, had done choral speaking in high school. So I I, I say, yes, it's died out, but there's certainly speech performance in our culture very strongly. Um I like to joke that Lynn Manuel Miranda is really leading the charge for uh, for for contemporary elocution. Uh, but there are there are other examples. The the in, in terms of reciting with music, Neil Gaiman, the sci-fi author, has recorded one of his short stories with his string quartet. Um, and there's also a, a rap poet named Kate Tempest who. I think may actually sound in some ways like a modern incarnation of what happened a hundred years ago, but it's, it's very hard to make those connections to, to what's going on now. It's, it's, it's tricky. Well, you just brought up, you said that, that this, um, the last person you spoke of may be a modern incarnation of what they sounded like. And of course that brings up what did elocution set to music sound like? Um, maybe we can first start uh, with older recordings. How much was this recorded? Are you able, you know, how far back can you hear someone doing this, um, performing this practice, at least orally? I understand you can't see them so much, but. Well, the early sound recordings do have a lot of recitation on them, um, and particularly the Edison recordings have, have, have lots of recitations on them. And we have recordings of early recordings of actors as, as well. And the speaking style is much more stylized than we are used to. Um, elocutionists were trained even to word paint in their vocal style, you know, if... if if they laid him in the grave, you would you would speak low, and if the sun rose, you would speak high. Um, they even use tremolo for moments of great emotion or horror or stress, and so their vo- voices would quaver in a vibrato-like fashion. And, and you can hear this in the early sound recordings. And at first, it it seems very weird and. Um, overdone to our ears. I, I have a recording of of The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe spoken to piano accompaniment that just seems so over the top. But after you listen to it for a while, it begins to make a lot more sense. And when you go back to listening to other people read The Raven, they seem really, really boring <laughs> in a more modern style. So, um, so, so there is that. Um, and I also have heard recordings of s- some female performers. There's a composer named Frida Pikey who wrote pieces for spoken word and piano. And I have heard her recordings. She made 19 recordings. They were not, but one of them released. Um, so I have some, some sense of what the performance practices were like. Uh, at the turn of the century and then later on into the 30s and the 40s. So you can hear them on recordings, but 
they also moved, right? They had sort of, like you were saying, there's a stylized way to speak, low for graves, high for hills or whatever. Um, How did they move? And also tell us how you were able to uncover this movement as well, since obviously this practice predates uh well, I mean, there's silent movies and things, but it, it, I got the impression from the book you were mostly hearing. You don't often see video of this kind of performance. Yeah, it's, uh, there's really nothing extant in that way. Um, there was in the 1880s, 90s, and into the early 20th century, there was a movement in elocution called Del Sartre. Um, it was based on the teachings of a French actor Francois Delsart, but actually it was really an American invention because later on Delsart's daughter came to America after he was dead and said, what, basically, what are you doing? My father never said anything like this. Um, and this art form was popularized by a, a woman named Genevieve Stebbins, who taught women both how to relax their bodies um, and to do various kinds of physical exercises, but also to pose as Grecian statues in in white gowns and sometimes in white makeup. And so there were stylized poses that you could do in relationship to the poetry you were reciting, or sometimes you would just substitute music and pose to music, and, and the poetry would then be theoretically expressed by your body. Some elocution books will have pictures of poses and they will also have then little codes, like they'll put in the poem a little code, you know, what pose to give where. So that that was also very, very stylized. It was also very much made fun of at the time. Um, you know, there was made fun of that women were prancing about in in white gowns and and posing but you have to think this is a period where women are starting to abandon their corsets and really get out of the restrictive clothing of the period so it was actually probably very very good for them and felt very very liberating and and you know not all elocutionists engaged in del sart but it was a popular entertainment and it was the sort of thing that if you were putting on a concert with recitations in your in your town maybe you know as a benefit for benefit for the local library or the local hospital you could end your event with this um with a del sart performance in which more than one woman could take part so they were often group events and you know and and people say what is this i've never seen anything like this but actually you have because it's satirized in meredith wilson's broadway musical the music man because mrs shin the mayor's wife is going to pose as a grecian urn um so it's it's satirized there, but nobody actually knows about the real real roots of of this style. So you mentioned that uh, it, just in this answer, and if anyone hasn't seen uh, the Music Man, I highly recommend that scene. Now that I have know what it is, it makes a whole lot more sense, and it's much funnier. <laughs> but. Um, uh, you mentioned that they could um, maybe they'd have some uh, elocution or reciting as part of a fundraiser, for instance, or something like that. And that brings me to one of the other places that uh, this uh, elocution was heard a lot, which was in women's clubs meetings. And um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about women's clubs and the um, how their place in kind of the society of middle-class women in American cities and how elocution worked within a meeting of one of these women's clubs. Well, women's clubs started out as literary study clubs for self-improvement in the progressive era. And so there were clubs that had literature and, and other art forms in them. There were also specifically music clubs. And these were a, a big, important force in American cultural life. They put on concerts. They brought in artists to women's towns. They funded scholarships. They were engaged in outreach efforts to people who didn't have musical events. And often the women's clubs, the, the music clubs, would be particularly large. In Chicago in 1927, the Musicians Club of Women had over 600 members. 
And so the really big clubs had women who were performers. Sometimes in very elite clubs, they had to audition to, to get in. And then they would have affiliate members who just wanted to come and hear, hear concerts. So these were venues for composers. These were venues for performers. Music clubs by of women um, often featured pianists and singers and violinists, occasionally cellists, harpists, and then readers or elocutionists, you know, just a few. Um, but they would then perform in, in these contexts and in the concerts that, that women's clubs put on. And, you know, the stereotype of women's clubs is, you know, ladies in hats and white gloves having tea and gossiping over their teacups. But some of these clubs were were very important cultural centers. Um, there was a club in Chicago called the Cordon Club, which was a not just music, it was a mixed club. And it had a whole floor on a of a building on Michigan Avenue that included a music room and an art gallery and a library. And you could go to the club and get dinner six nights a week. And there were events every, every day, you know, there were, there were teas and there were travel events and there were political speakers and musicians and actors and writers who came to talk to the club. Um, In Des Moines, Iowa, the women's club there built a concert hall that is still in existence, Hoyt Sherman Place, which is really an important center in the cultural life of Des Moines. So, um, you know, really, elocutionists are a very small part of women's club's life. and, And, you know, as they died out, they died out of women's clubs as well. But women's clubs were very formidable in in transmitting music throughout America during during the late 19th and early 20th century. Mary and I was fortunate enough to see you perform some uh, I don't pieces I guess at a conference that we both attended just this past weekend, and I came away with a completely new understanding of this practice from that performance. And I understand you have a YouTube channel or some YouTube videos up. Can you tell us how people can find it if they finish this and would like to run, go watch you? Because it really was a revelation to me. So how can we find some of those? So uh, the YouTube channel is under my name, Marion Wilson Kimber, and the playlist is called In a Woman's Voice. So if you Google it, you will find uh, four videos of the very first recital I ever gave of women's spoken word compositions. Um, I think I've actually gotten better at it since that then, since I've given several performances. That was about a year ago. But um, it's still getting hits. People are still watching them. So I, re- I recommend them. And I do talk a little bit before the performance about each of the composers that I'm doing. So what struck me about your performances, which were, it, it really was such a great time. And I know the other people, we were at the Society of American Music, just everyone who came, came away raving about it. I was really struck that several of the ones that you chose to perform, which were quite funny, um, really showed an incredible self-awareness of a woman's role in society at the time. Um, And also you, you did at least one that talked about, or several, I guess, really about the life of a woman. Um, One was about a woman who was desperate for a husband and was sort of reflecting on her, how her ideas about what a man should be for her to marry, how those have changed as she got older. There was another one on aging. Um, The texts of these um, spoken word pieces and how you see them reflecting on how the authors themselves understood their place as women in society. Well, um, these, these pieces fascinate me because they are texts that women select and that they set to piano accompaniment and then would perform for other women in women's clubs. So, you know, this uh, I joke, this is the chick lit of music, that, that women are in a setting where they feel freer to maybe push back a little bit on some of the societal norms of the period in a joking way, 
But humor is a form of power. It's a way of taking control of your situation and and having an interpretation of it and um, and making fun of the things that you don't don't like. And if anybody says, oh, you're being too critical and you're stepping outside of these certain kinds of societal boundaries, you can say, oh, I'm just joking. So the the pieces I did, um, and some of those are on the YouTube channel as well, are mostly by Phyllis Fergus, who performed for women's clubs in Chicago, and Frida Pikey, who was based in L.A. and did many events in that part of the world. And they would recite and play the piano accompanying themselves. Um, I, I'm not that great a pianist. So I have a pianist named Natalie Landowski and we perform together and, and she's great. And we started to, to work on these pieces. And I, I knew I thought they were funny and I knew, and, and Natalie and I would rehearse and I, we would both giggle afterwards uh, when we would finish a piece, but we didn't know if modern audiences would find them as funny as we did, but they do because many of the situations that the women are talking about in these pieces are still true. Um, there are critiques of men's fidelity. Um, there are I didn't do any of those, but there are critiques of housework. Um, there are issues of aging, which is, you know, not something that, that comes up that much in most music that I encounter. You know, what, what it's like to get old and to have your knees ache. Um, there are lots of pieces about grandmothers. I didn't, I didn't do any of those in, in the recital, but you get the sense that some of these audiences were older women, the women who had time to go to women's clubs. And so these pieces spoke to them. So you, you really get a sense that this is women are in a space where they can tell some truths to each other and they can do it in a, in a humorous way. And, and um, I, I know, I think we still need, need some of that humor now. Um, it still it still speaks to us. We still need to laugh about the problems of being female in the modern world. Yes, I think that's what really struck me. I'd always thought of women's clubs as being terribly stuffy, and I got that impression. Um, you know, accounts of them in magazines or the information that they uh, were. Um, People have given them um, their, I'm not saying this very well, but I have seen journal articles where they just go through and say, well, this is what you should talk about in one of these meetings. And it's all deadly serious and it's all so much about improving themselves. And I thought of these meetings as just being really showing how bored women must be that they would go to these things, <laughs> but also, um, you know, how, how serious they were when they were in public. And I really got a completely different idea of them after watching you perform and thinking, you know, maybe these were just a lot of fun. And yes, they did want to learn something in some of these more serious lectures, but it was this space where they could be themselves in a way maybe they couldn't be in other uh, settings. And also, um, maybe the impression I had gotten about women's clubs was erroneous because what I was reading was a public facing account of them or a public sort of facing about this is what you should be talking about. Did you get a sense that maybe this elocution was a great, was a better representation of what these meetings might have been like and how women talked up among themselves when they were just with themselves, you know? It's hard to know because there certainly are really um, important activities by women's clubs that are very serious. You know, women worked for good labor laws and temperance and peace. Um, and women's clubs often advocated for high art music. You know, they were trying to bring the best music, which, of course, was considered to be white male European music to their town. Um, and, it, you know, it's interesting to me that in the same way that the earlier elocutionists framed what they were doing as great literature, even these humorous pieces were sometimes marketed as being, you know, this is good music, this is serious music, and it's like high art music. And, and it's, it's not 
really. Um, you know, they're short, lightweight pieces, most of them. Um, but the, the packaging had to be more serious in order to get taken more seriously. And so, you know, I think there's, this is a function of women trying to establish their political place and their artistic place in a, in a, in a patriarchal world. And they can't always do it with, here we are, we're the women. They have to do it by saying, look, we're doing great literature. Look, we're doing high art music. Even if actually, you know, between the, the Beethoven piano sonata and the aria from Carmen, Phyllis Fergus comes on and plays a piece about two lovers who meet at a seaside resort but won't come back the next year because they're scared they're going to run into the other one. Um, and everybody laughs. Um, you know, one of the things about performing these pieces that I have thought is, is now that I've done this, when I go to concerts, I think, gee, why don't we have some humor on this concert as well? I think it would, in fact, enhance our concert life in many settings to have more humor in, in the concert hall because that's a that's an important part of our lives. We we need humor. So I'm I've become very pro humor after performing these pieces. That brings up, you know, you're, we've discussed the what the texts were about sometimes. They can be sentimental, they can be funny. Um, I know that others are in dialect and um, there's even battlefield recitations. But let's talk um, about the music. What did the music sound like? Who? What music? Was this newly composed or was it... Um, you know, these classical pieces, just give us a sense of what we would hear in terms of the music. Well, there was really quite a, a broad range. Um, in the late 19th century, there were rather large works, you know, long texts with complicated piano accompaniments that women performed. And some of those were composed by men. Richard Strauss composed a setting of Tennyson's Enoch Arden, there were some American composers, Rossiter G. Cole, that wrote large melodramatic works. Um, but women also just adopted music into their recitation. So, so you might, if you were reciting a poem that mentioned the song Home Sweet Home, you might then have your pianist play that song at the point that that song was mentioned. Sometimes songs were recited rather than sung um, so that, you know, you, you just recited the text and you didn't, you didn't sing the tune. Um, so, so there were a variety of practices from these really informal improvised practices where uh, there's a Cincinnati elocutionist named Jane Manor who would recite Longfellow to Saint-Saëns the Swan or another text to uh, character pieces by Schumann or, um, you know, other, other sort of short, short piano works. And she would just pair up what she thought would work well together um, to the pieces that I've been doing on these programs, which are 20th century pieces that have completely composed accompaniments. So sometimes it was a kind of late romantic piano style. Um, other times it was just hymn tunes or, or popular songs or tunes that people knew well, Coming Through the Rye, Home Sweet Home, um, Annie Laurie, uh, tune, tunes everybody knew. So there's this combination here of, of composed pieces and then uh, a, a non-notated, more improvisational practice. And they would, the elocutionists themselves would almost always play them, play the piano themselves, right? Were there other instruments or, you know? Um, no, no, normally, um, normally they had a pianist. The, the, the women who composed their own pieces, they did perf uh, accompany themselves. But um, often a, a program would alternate spoken word and 
music. So if you've already got a pianist hanging about on your program to play a little bit of Chopin, there's no reason the pianist can't play a little background music while you recite. This is what makes it so hard to figure out what actually happened because it's it's not always clear exactly when pianists were playing in the background for elocutionists. And it took it took me a long time to figure out that there was a, a body of texts that were pretty often done with music and it just became sort of standard practice that if you gave Owen Meredith's poem Os Italien, you had to play a little bit of the Miserere from Verdi's Il Trovatore in the course of giving that recitation and it, it became a, a standard thing to do. But but often their elocutions are appearing on programs where there are performers. So that that helps them be able to do this. And would the pianist be most likely a man then or or did you you know did you have people that were traveling with uh, women uh, pianists as well or you know yes they tend to in my experience they tend more often to be women um, Jane Manor traveled with a with a pianist. Uh, accompanying her though though and the pianist then got her own numbers um, or if she gave a longer text like a bit of a novel or a play the pianist functioned like prelude and intermission material and and one review even talked about how great the pianist was except everybody was talking through it they thought she was just background music during intermission um, so uh, on the Chautauqua circuit the concert companies can were often all women or occasionally one man in the concert company and I you know I think this has to do with just uh women feeling they needed a man to escort them for safety in travel in, a, in an earlier era where women, women didn't travel as much alone so you've mentioned several names now of different performers and also performers slash composers. And what I, one of the things I really liked about your book is you sort of circled around elocution and kind of poked at it from all sorts of different uh, vantage points. Sometimes it was more issues of identity. Other times it was place. And several times you spent uh, some time on individual women that were really important to the story. And one that particularly interested me that I was hoping you could talk about was Kitty Cheatham. Um, can you tell us a little bit about her and why you decided to include her specifically in this book? Yes, K- Kitty Cheatham started out as an actress and probably wouldn't have called herself an elocutionist. She she was better known as a singer. And initially, I felt like she didn't fit into this story. She was not trained in elocution schools. She um, was sort of an individual oddity. But by the time I was done with the book, I felt like she brought together a lot of different threads. Um, she came from Nashville, from an upper-class family, and she was on the stage briefly, and she married, but uh, then got divorced. Then when she came back to the stage, she marketed herself as an individual performer for children, and she gave concerts that were associated with Easter or Christmas. So um, so there was a, a slight religious tone to her work, and she gave children's songs and recitations and jokes and also sang African-American spirituals. So... She just seemed very, very odd to me. But um, on further work, uh, many, many female elocutionists were giving dialect recitations in various kinds of dialects, including African-American as a sort of act of of vocal virtuosity. So she she fit in that way. Um, They were also giving child dialect recitations and imitating the voices of children seemed to be an appropriate thing for women to do. So she fit that as well. Um, And then she also appeared with orchestras in in a sort of early version of young people's concerts where she would sing or she would tell stories about Haydn or Felix and Fanny Mendelssohn. And she then also became sort of associated with the high art end of 
of the the recitation and entertainment world. So um, she marketed herself as sort of high art performer. Um, and, and though for children, and she published books of classical music with converted to songs with texts made for children. So so she she ties into the the sort of the the women who appear with orchestras. She's related to the women who do dialect and and child di- African American di- dialect and child dialect. Um, and she did many texts by Paul Lawrence Dunbar that were very popular with both black and white female performers. So I finally decided that she, she even though she didn't really call herself an elocutionist, she fit um, so many of these little threads and, and managed to have this rather odd but very successful professional career based in New York, but also touring America and Europe that I, I just I had to put her in. This brings something up, this, this answer. And one reason I wanted to ask about Cheatham was the issue of race. Was this primarily something that you saw white women performing for other white women or are there is there a lot are there a lot of you know african-american reciters maybe um reciters from other ethnic backgrounds asian or latina or something can you tell us a little bit about more about what's the demographics i guess of this this uh, phenomenon largely white but there certainly were african-american reciters and um, sometimes they were in African American concert companies. Uh, you know, you get you get little little hints of them. Some of them were rather well known. Haley Quinn Brown, then um, who started out as an el- elocutionist, then became very active in civil rights later on. So, so there is some evidence um, for for black elocutionists. Sometimes black elocutionists are women who would really like to be in theater, but can't because of their race. And they often give the same kinds of texts as white performers, but then there's also some evidence of some different kinds of, of texts that they, they gave to black audiences. And uh, Haley Quinn Brown published a, a book of poetry called Bits and Odds, which has a lot of the standard things in it that, that white women gave, but also has some has some different texts that were clearly designed for performances for black audiences. Now, what texts did you find that you thought would probably only have been performed by African-American reciters? There's a text about a, a church burning down in Charleston, and the person who rings the bell, climbs the steeple and rings the bell and saves the church is an African-American slave. And it makes a very pointed political point about his humanity. So that's an example. Um, the other texts that were um, often taken up by African-American reciters were the texts by Paul Lawrence Dunbar very, very important African-American poet, sort of considered to be the first great African-American poet. And women, white women did Dunbar's text as well, but, but having Dunbar was much more significant for black reciters. And there appears to have been a long tradition of women performing Dunbar, even past the height of elocution. Well, I want to start to wrap this up because with this, we could talk all day about this a fascinating book, but perhaps we should leave some things on the table so people will read it. But um, maybe we could, I'll ask you one more question to sort of wrap things up. And that is about um, kind of where do you see elocution in the cultural hierarchy of the time? Um, is this highbrow? Is it lowbrow? Where Where is it fitting in um, in in a in a culture that really was quite hierarchical, where people had very um, distinct ideas about who listens to what and what's appropriate and what isn't, where is elocution and all of that? Well, I think it would like to be highbrow, and I I think the way that it was presented was 
highbrow. And, and I think many women aspired to do Shakespeare. All elocution schools offered Shakespeare courses. Um, and the, the, the marketing of it was that women were going to transmit great, great literature. It, you know, it, they served a pedagogical function by bringing great literature to their audiences. The reality was it's a lot harder to perceive great literature orally in a in a short amount of time you know the sort of very difficult text that you might read and reread silently um, doesn't always work read out loud or performed out loud so women had to entertain their audiences as well so the kind of poetry they were really more likely to give would be middle brow um, they gave humorous monologues, such as Aunt Doleful's visit about a complaining relative. Um, and, and audiences clearly responded to comedy. They responded to sentimental texts. So, um, so though, even though this is supposed to be highbrow and good for you, I, I really think this is a middlebrow, respectable entertainment, not lowbrow, but not as high as it probably would have liked to have been. How's that? <laughs> That's a good answer. I like that. There's a lot of that, I think, in uh, that period that, that aspired for things that it, maybe it didn't quite get to. Um, my last question is just, you, this is a huge project that I know you've been working on for years. What are you doing now that we can look forward to in the future? I'm starting to explore women's clubs. I have an article coming out in the Journal of the Society for American Music next year about women composers' concerts at the White House for Eleanor Roosevelt. And um, I've been exploring the Eleanor Roosevelt papers at, at the FDR Presidential Library in Hyde Park, New York. And I'm currently working on uh, songs from the 1930s by women about peace related to Eleanor Roosevelt's activism in uh, women's peace organizations. So I'm, I'm uh, not working on elocution, but I'm still working on women and women's musical efforts. Well, thank you so much for this great uh, conversation. And I certainly look forward to reading that article in JSAM. And thank you for all your work. Thank you. Thank you.